This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Well, welcome uh, to our CBI, Chicago's Best Ideas. Uh, I'm Saul Lovemore, and I'm here to do the first CBI of the season. Um, I've had some of you in class, but many of you are new, so I thought I would just uh, start with like 20 seconds about what Chicago Best Idea is about, and then uh, explain a little bit of law, and then uh, try to say something that will interest you, and then leave plenty of time for questions. So your mind should be spinning already that you're going to ask a question. It's good. It's, a good. it's good practice to get in. And that's one of Chicago's best ideas, that you should always question people with a little bit of uh, contempt in your voice. Like, oh, that can't be right because, or something like that. Every once in a while you can throw the professor off by saying, ooh, ooh, you're so right, and then, you know, give a piece of evidence, but then your classmates will hate you and all, all that sort of thing. So uh, let me just start with telling you what CBIs are. Uh, the law school was 100 years old at some point not that long ago. And uh, we wanted to do something different. And the idea was, well, there's all this famous stuff that happened in Chicago. Maybe we could have a series of talks where uh, we explain to people, especially 1Ls, but really everybody, like uh, how Chicago Law School become famous. Like what, what were the great ideas that made it uh, a big time place? And then, of course, uh, whoever spoke could try to make the idea contemporary or give a little personal push on it or something like that. Uh, I got to say, I, uh, the reason I always give the first CBI, or usually do, is because I started them when I was dean here. But uh, it's sort of fallen away. Like, people just come in and talk about whatever paper they're working on. But this is a real CBI. Like, I'm going to start with a best idea that's not mine. It's not my best idea. And then we'll talk about the idea a little bit, or maybe even criticize it or whatever. Do you want a seat? There's actually a seat right over here. Yeah, come on. <clears throat> Um, there you go. We won't, we won't stare at you. So, uh, so, that, so that's the history of it, and now I'm going to start. Okay, everybody ready? All right. So uh, as you know from the title, my idea has something to do with the common law, and the, real, the subject is, uh, why did the common law decline? But I'm a little bit nervous that people don't know what the common law is, so I thought I would just do like two minutes about what the common law is, uh, especially for 1Ls. And especially because there are one or two people here who are not even law students. Like, they just probably came for the free food or, or whatever. Uh, but you should know what it is. And then I'm going to talk about what I mean by its decline and why it occurred and what's the Chicago best idea we're, we're talking about. Okay. So uh, the common law started in this British concept that carried over to the United States, which we'll talk about. I'll talk about at some length which is the idea that there was this law that lawmakers made. They were often people who were elected or originally the king, but you could think about the American experience. So we feel like a democracy and we elect these people. They make laws. They appoint agencies. Agencies make laws. But then meanwhile, people go to court with things. And then every once in a while, it seems so anti-democratic, but the courts intervene and they come up with rules. It's as if they've been elected to come up with rules. And so it, it'll feel very modern, like it's an aggressive judiciary but it usually occurred in private law topics, meaning like torts, contracts, and we'll talk about that, about why that is and whether that's still true or whatever. So lots of famous things in law 
uh, don't come from the usual lawmakers. Like the judge became a lawmaker. And that's what we mean by the common law, that it evolved through a series of judges and then other judges copied it. And it became part of the legal system. As you'll see, sometimes the legislature stepped in and it took that judge-made law and threw it into some statute to give it like added heft or something. And I want to explain that about why that happened and what that has to do with Chicago Best Idea and, and, and so forth. Okay, so that's what the common law is. Again, it's judge-made law that was bought into by other judges and experience and so forth. So when you look for the original law, like if you live in France and people say, you know, why is this and this the law? They can always point to some statute. But if you look in England and the United States and you say, why is that the law? It might have started and finished with a judge. And that's what we mean by a common law country, that laws evolved by judges creating them. All right, now I'm ready to start the real part of the talk. So the Chicago best idea uh, that I want to talk about is uh, this idea that is attributed to uh, Richard Posner when he was on the faculty. And it was this idea that's solidly associated with Chicago. And it's this idea that uh, the common law was efficient. Now, I don't want to go into this whole debate about what efficiency means and all that. I mean, uh, various things, we'll talk about that. But I think you get the idea. The idea was something like this. The original Posner idea applied mostly to tort law, but really to many areas of law. The idea was something like, look, judges come up with these rules. Like they might say, uh, if you behave negligently and you injure me, then you've got to pay me some money. And the amount of money will be determined by blah, blah, blah. Or you break a contract, you'll owe some money, but the money won't be unlimited. It'll, be a, it'll amount to something in common law countries. It was generally the expectation value of the contract, unlike what was going on in Europe and so forth. And judges made those rules. No legislature made the rules. Judges made the rules. Posner's claim, which was really astounding at the time, was that those rules were efficient. And by efficient, he meant something like, if you took the whole value of the society, or certainly the parties involved, and you thought about what they would do if they could bargain about it, you thought about what they would do if they could maximize wealth, that's the rule they would have come, they would have come up with. Now, this was really an astonishing idea. Why was it astonishing? Well, for a few reasons. One, if you meet judges on the street and you say to them, uh, I hear you have this contract rule, this tort rule of the following. Do you know that this guy at Chicago named Posner said that you are really efficiency machine? You're passing efficient laws. On the one hand, the judge would say, uh, no, I never took economics. I, I don't even know what efficiency is. So how could I come up with a rule that was efficient. And Posner's insight was something like, well, there would be a kind of evolutionary pattern where if the judge's rule was inefficient, other people would bring cases until the rule was driven to efficiency, or they would move jurisdictions and go places where the rule was efficient, or they would lobby the legislature and say, judges are making this crazy rule that's ruining national income. You should pass the following rule that's different from it. And so that inefficient rules would be driven out of experience. It's like having things on your body that are not prone to reproduce versus things that reproduce. It was really an, that kind of rule, like, oh, over time, the common law will become efficient, even though judges have no idea what they're doing. Now, I like to think that every once in a while, if you say, you know, what rules survive? I think it's a little more complicated, I'll just say at the outset. Like, if you say to a judge, uh, you know, it turns out that this rule you made in torts is really an efficient rule, and it maximizes wealth in the United States, I think most judges would say, well, that's not why I passed the rule, but you, you say that my rule is efficient? Great. 
you know, I have no reason to change the rule. Like, turns out I'm a genius. Well, okay, you know, that's fine with me. I think there's also something else going on, which is that the rule has to be morally attractive. I mean, the judge has to go home or, given the time of year, we could say when the judge goes to Thanksgiving dinner and there are all these relatives there, and they say, uh, what, rule you, what rule have you passed recently? And the judge said, oh, I have the following rule. Like, if the audience at the table says, oh, that's disgusting, that's a really horrible thing, you're treating people like, you know, blackboards or something, the judge would be a little bit embarrassed. On the other hand, if the judge had an efficient rule and it seemed to follow people's, what I call, moral intuitions, or what the literature calls that, the judge might think, oh, well, you know, my family's proud of me, that's really a good thing. So I think rules that survive over time are rules that are both efficient and comport more or less with people's moral intuitions. I'll have more to say about that later, but I just want to get that straight. Posner's idea was really about the efficiency. I think we can add a little bit of moral tone to it. Sometimes there are like multiple rules that are efficient, and the ones the common law seems to have gravitated to are by and large the ones that at the Thanksgiving table people were proud of. Uh, these people who never took any economics and didn't know what efficiency was and so forth. So again, you could picture why they survived. If people challenged the judge, the judge would say, great, you know, it's morally appropriate. I mean, at least I could talk people into it. You know, after a couple hours of dinner or something, and it's efficient, like, great, I'm very proud of, uh, of that kind of uh, rule. Again, if it wasn't efficient or was morally horrible, people would probably migrate away. This is a famous... Uh, idea in political science, sometimes associated with this guy, Thibault, that jurisdictions will have rules, and if people don't like them, they'll move to another jurisdiction where they do like the rule. If it's inefficient, businesses won't want to open there, they'll go somewhere else, and, and uh, so forth. So I, I happen to like theories like that, that you know they have a moral and an economic component, they're passed along, and so forth. But I promise you that our subject is not... So that was the Posner idea. That's the Chicago great idea. It doesn't mean that the person coming to speak to you at lunchtime claims that his ideas are Chicago's great ideas. It means there is a Chicago great idea, and we're going to talk about it and see how it has some application and so forth. So the Chicago best idea, the CBI that we're talking about, is this Posner idea that the common law was efficient. And our topic for today is, okay, maybe that's true. Maybe in a lot of cases it was efficient. I say both efficient and morally appealing, at least somewhat. And then the question is, why did it decline? There's no question that it declined. Um, if you had gone to law school in 1960, uh, two-thirds of the curriculum you studied would have been uh, common law rules. And now, uh, some of you probably weren't even sure what the common law was. I mean, it might come up in your contracts and torts casebook. But half of what you learn is constitutional law and other areas of law, and tax law and other areas, where there is a little bit of common law, but mostly it's not. Mostly uh, people go to the legislature or worse, I mean other places we'll talk about, and they try to get new rules passed, and they don't think that judges on their own have much to do. In fact, we don't appoint judges because of their past rules and contracts. We appoint judges because of their feelings about abortion or other constitutional cases. Again, a subject I want to talk about uh, later on, about what it is that judges are trying to do and why it is that they've moved away from uh, common law uh, subjects. So why did it decline? I want to give you like several reasons, and then we'll put them together, and then I'll give you a couple possibilities for the future, and then you get a chance to talk or ask questions or, or whatever. So I want to say there are like seven reasons, but I, I wrote myself seven notes, but really the seven reasons boil down to a few, so don't count. 
I mean, you know, but to me, there are like seven reasons in my, in my brain. First, sometimes a, a reason that we could associate with so-called public choice, meaning how do groups decide things, what are the rules of organization, how do they vote, and, and so forth. And I think the way to think about it is this, that um, who goes to a legislature, what does a legislature do, what do agencies do, and, and so forth. You know, um, there are people, I don't know if you've known this, but they form groups and they give money to government and they try to influence law. You know, it's much, much easier in our society to influence a legislature at the state level or the national level than it is to influence judges. First of all, at the federal level, our judges, like, serve for life. So it's very hard, you know, they can violate, you know, a promise they make to you. If you say, you know, I'll talk to the president and get you appointed as a judge, if you do the following... You know, the judge really doesn't have that much of an incentive to keep the promise, so to speak. The judge might find the promise immoral. The judge has got a lifetime job. Whereas people who get elected, they need your donations in the future in order to run for office again, or so they think. Uh, They have reasons to really want to please the crowd, uh, if you will. And moreover, when they pass a rule that favors somebody, say a rule that makes uh, some environmental law or a rule that makes some tax law, uh, if the rule tries to change, if they try to upend the rule, there is an interest group that's really affected by the rule. They, they lose, they get upset, and people have this tendency to like what they have. It's kind of a loss aversion theory, and they don't want to lose the values that they have. So they go lobby the legislature, and they say, I really need this rule, or I won't move into your state or something. And then when you pass the rule, if you try to change the rule, they really go crazy. Oh, my God, like you're changing away, you're ruining my expectations that's like a meaningless phrase, but it's popular with people. Oh, I expected this, therefore I'm entitled to it forever. This is really popular. Moreover, and now I'm sneaking in a second reason, sometimes people can say, you took away something I counted on, and we call that like takings law. And people will even point to the Constitution and say, you can't take my property. And then they point to other things and say, oh, that's just like property. You cannot take it away. I relied on it. Again, a kind of useless phrase, but one that serves you well when you take exams. So just always, u- always use it, even though it doesn't mean anything. Oh, I relied on it. It's there. It's a takings violation, all that. I mean, all of this means nothing, because law is really about changing your expectations. And sometimes it's very efficient to change your expectations. I- in fact, that's probably the best way to make law. We fool you into doing things we think you should do, and then we change the rule in order to get other people to do what we think they should do. And then, you know, the law is there. But that's not quite what this talk is about. But you should bear in mind that often... Changing the rule is really a good thing. And you might just say, if you want to be a bad kind of lawyer, well, people know to expect law to change. It's like you come to law school and you might want to take a course, and then by the time you're a 2L or a 3L, we don't offer that course. Like you can whine and go to the dean and say, oh, I came to Chicago because I wanted this and this course, and it's not there anymore. And, you know, the dean will try to placate you and so forth. But really the dean is thinking, no, you came to Chicago because it's a great law school, and if we've changed the courses, that's because we thought it was good for the law school, and maybe even good for you. Like, we know better than you do what's good for you, uh, so to speak. That was meant to be funny. Um, you know, or we know what's better for the group. Like, you do know that when you go somewhere, when you go to a law school, and when you go to a country, that the rules might change within bounds. Some things are protected and some not. So that's another reason why the common law was bound to decline and legislatures were bound to go up. Because people could go to the legislature and secure a promise that judges just couldn't make for them. Judges would make a promise and it would change. 
they go to the legislature, and then they would scream if the legislature tried to change the rule. There'd be an organized interest group. The people who were hurt were usually dispersed. Lots of little people all over the place that didn't yet have together or didn't have this kind of loss aversion thing and, and so forth. You know, also, another reason why it declined, why we had less judge-made law, was a lot of times, I've already hinted at this, the judges would come up with a rule. I'll give examples later. The judges would come up with a rule, and it was a really good rule. You know, the judges would switch, say, from contributory negligence to comparative negligence. You know, if I run you over, but it's because you jumped out in the middle of the street to see if I could stop in time, I don't owe you full damages, I might owe you partial damages, because you contributed to the problem. We were comparatively negligent. In the old days, the law was, as soon as I could show that you were negligent, you know, that you helped bring about your accident, you got zero. In the modern days, it goes to a jury or a judge, and they say, well, the driver was speeding, maybe he's 65% liable, but she jumped out in front of cars, playing some game drunk, she's 35% responsible, and I would pay you 65% of the damages. That's what we call comparative negligence. This was created by judges, more or less, in the United States. But it was so popular and reasonably efficient. By the way, the other rule was efficient too, but that's for course, not for now. Uh, it, it satisfied both efficiency and people's moral intuition. Oh, yeah, they sh you shouldn't lose everything just because you ran out in the street. It was very, very popular. And then once it's so popular, legislature started thinking, you know, that rule's a really good rule. People really like it. Uh, we're going to pass that rule. We're going to put it into written law. There are two reasons to do that. One is kind of obnoxious, but they wanted credit for it. Oh, well, look at the good rules we passed. And another is that there are always some wayward judges. You know, the really good rule judges develop, and then some judge, inevitably, like in New Jersey or California, that says, oh, I don't want to follow that rule. I'll stick to the old rule. And, you know, people didn't like that. And so the legislature said, boy, there is a better rule. You're a wayward judge. We're going to, like, put it into writing now so that you're forced to follow it. That's true of many, many rules we have. Lots of rules that are in legislation were started by judges in a common law process. Then they appear in legislation. Now you come to law school and you read the legislation and it looks like it was made by the legislature, but really it originated in judge-made law or common law. So that's kind of a third reason, or however we're counting, that you know, maybe the decline of the common law is in part because it was successful. Judges came up with rules, legislatures liked them so much, but they put them into statutes. Now we read the statutes and we imagine, oh, what a clever statute. But really it was a common law process that eventually got codified uh, into the uh, rules. And again, legislatures took credit for it and uh, so forth. Another reason often given in the literature is that uh, people think they want certainty. And as I've already said, you, the certainty is a little bit more obvious if it's put in by a legislature and legislatures find it hard to change the rule and uh, whether or not judges came up with the rule. So to the extent that people want certainty, they want to know the tax rule in advance. They want to know what happens if they drive too fast in advance. You know, imagine that everything was common law and you drove too fast on Lakeshore Drive and you ran into somebody or you didn't run into somebody and somebody stopped you and you went to court and the judge was saying, you know, driving fast, that's really bad for you. I think you should owe $101. People really wouldn't like that. They like to think, Oh, I want to know in advance what happens if I drive too fast. You know, I would like to know the rule in advance. Now, it's not really realistic. Lots of areas of law we have. You kind of know you'll get in trouble, but you don't really know what the punishment is. But in theory, people think they want to know in advance. It's thought to be good for business to know rules in advance. You can select where you're going to go. Now, in fact, we violate this all the time. 
We change tax law all the time. You might be sorry you built a factory. You might be sorry you went to law school. No one's promising you what income will be later on. But you're sort of counting on it being better than it is now, just as much as it could be worse than it is now. And besides, you'll be part of a bar association. You'll have a strong interest group if they try to ruin your life by suddenly letting people from other countries come be lawyers tomorrow and take away all your clients. You can count on other lawyers going to court and coming up with some crazy rule about why people shouldn't be able to practice law without taking the bar exam in your state or something like that. All of this is really cementing the status quo, right? That's a real example. It's cementing the status quo, and it's much harder for judges to do that than for legislatures. So under the guise of, oh, our citizens really want to know what the future will bring, they really want certainty, the legislature acts to sort of codify the certainty. Again, I, you could tell from my voice, I think this is sort of ridiculous. A lot of times it's good for people not to know uh, what's coming in the future. And they sort of know this about themselves. You know, think about back when you were eight years old and you misbehaved at home. You know, you ha- uh, if you had a parent who was a good parent, and in your generation, everybody thinks they had good parents, uh, your parents probably said, don't do that again. If you do that again, you know what's going to happen to you. And neither you nor the parent had any idea what was going to happen to you. But it turned out to be a pretty good child-rearing line. Like, whoa, you know, no, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, it's like this, I think it's actually a good rule. Like, telling people there's some uncertainty about what will happen to them is probably pretty good. It gets them a little risk-averse. It makes the parent not have the transactions cost, as we call it, of having to write down what the rule will be in the future. Like, everybody gains. It's a win-win to throw uncertainty uh, into your life. Most people don't want to know what they're going to get for their birthday next year. You could think of that as another example of having less knowledge is better than more knowledge in lots of strange ways, and law is kind of the same thing. Another thing that happens, oh, and I already mentioned takings law. That's another thing. I mean, one reason why law moved, but we can ignore that for today. Uh, Another interesting thing was the growth of arbitration. You know, to the extent that people didn't like running to court and waiting two years to go to trial and so forth, people started outsourcing law. And businesses would enter transactions and they would agree, oh, if we have a dispute about our contract, we will go to arbitration. That became very, very popular. Some industries are entirely uh, go to arbitration. People might object to them. If I buy stock and you misstate things about the stock to me, I want to go to court. Yeah, no, they don't. They don't realize how expensive it is to go to court and how time-consuming it is. So going to arbitration became very, very attractive to people, and arbitration grew, and courts loved it. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, why did courts like it? It was taking work away from them. That's true, but remember, a lot of these judges were appointed to life, and this reduced their workload. Like, oh, instead of getting 500 cases a week, I'll only get 100, because four out of five people are taking the case to arbitration. And in fact, in most countries, but more so in the United States and elsewhere, Judges really liked arbitration. They supported it. They said, oh, you can't appeal the arbitration result except in extreme cases. And so the growth of arbitration is another way to think about the decline of the common law. Like, people were going to court about fewer issues and less often because they were going to this arbitrations thing, the courts were supporting. I mean, it's really a very, very uh, powerful effect, even though it might seem counterintuitive to us why people uh, did that. Well, one uh, net effect of this, maybe this is the last reason I'll talk about before moving forward, maybe the a last reason to point out is that um, 
judges had another thing in mind. There was all the stuff you could take to arbitration, like contracts, even torts, and other stuff. And that left them room to move from private law to public law. I mean, it was, it was sort of inconceivable. Like, say you lived in a state that didn't let you get married because of something in your past. Or say you lived in a state that didn't let you vote because you had done something in your past. Or didn't let you get an abortion because they had anti-abortion rules or whatever. That didn't seem like something that you could go to arbitration about. Like, the arbitration didn't seem like it could change what we call public law subjects. It seemed like the rule was going to be the same for all the citizens of the city, the state, or the country. It's hard to think about immigration law moving to arbitration. Do you see what I mean? Like, nodding your head would be a good thing here. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like arbitration was something that could happen if you and I had, like, a problem between us, but not something like if you and everybody else, or you in the state, or you in the whole country, or you in another country, had something going on between you. So there was this big area of law, let's call it public law, that couldn't go to arbitration and was left to judges. And, you know, judges loved it. I mean, suddenly judges got to be the first movers about things like, you know, think about things in your lifetime, about things like abortion, about things like same-sex marriage, about things like family relationships, about things like what happens to children when there is divorce. All these things that we used to think of as law law suddenly became like judge-made law. Now, we don't call it common law. We just say, oh, how do judges do that? They always said, oh, I'm appealing to the Constitution. They would say, oh, the Constitution says that it should be an equal society. I think that equal means you should be in charge of your own body. Or I think that equal means the employer should be able to fire you or something. So there's this dramatic move over the last 50 years where judges got more and more involved in social issues by finding, I don't mean this as either negative or positive, it's just reality, by finding rights, they call the constitutional law. I mean, we have like two tort courses and two to four contract courses. I think we have, what do we have now, like 27? You've taken con law 27? Uh, Yeah. I think we've had years of con law nine, actually. And that's the story of our society. Like, more and more things became constitutionalized. Again, not by any legislature or the draft of the Constitution, but because judges began to see their power not in changing torts and contracts where the legislature could always overrule them, and anyway, people were rejecting them and going to arbitrators. Oh, thank goodness, they didn't have to care about that stuff. So judges got more and more involved in these public law issues. But instead of calling it common law, I mean, what gave the judge the right to decide that? The judges found these rights in the Constitution, or other judges said, no, it's contrary to the Constitution, but it was battled in Con Law 1 through 7, uh, so to speak, rather than in the common law. So, in fact, if you take one thing away from this talk, and I hope it's more than one, but if you take one thing away from this talk, you might say, oh, the common law just looks like it declined a lot. They don't mention it in law school as much as they did when my parents and grandparents went to law school. But what really happened was the common law just got to be called constitutional law. I mean, it was still a lot of judge-made law. The judges originated things, and then eventually the legislatures either copied them or tried to pass rules that overruled them, or there were further battles in courts. But basically, judges made a lot of law, certainly as much law as they did 50 years ago. It just wasn't in contracts and torts and property. It was much more in things that we think of as public law. It was human rights and foreign rights and body rights, 
marriage rights, divorce rights, things like that, bringing up children rights. I mean, a lot, a lot of subjects they did, but it became uh, constitutional law. Uh, to me, it really feels like it's the common law process. Again, I'll say it again. One judge tries it out and makes the rule. Maybe other judges follow. Maybe they don't. Eventually, if many judges follow it, it becomes the law. Sometimes the legislature goes along with it and puts it into some statute. Sometimes the legislature tries to rebel and say, oh, we're going to impeach you. And they try to pass a contrary law. But maybe courts step in and overrule that. I mean, that looks to me a lot like the common law process that used to dominate uh, contracts and torts and subjects like that. It just now dominates other subjects that we teach in uh, constitutional uh, law. So what, what does this say about the future? Well, think about the things that law, the judges really don't do and that legislatures barely do also. So I just pick three topics uh, without delving into them. I mean, uh, what are the big topics of our era? You know, there's climate change hovering out there. Uh, there's autonomous vehicles and what they'll be responsible you know, in our future. There's income inequality, which seems to be a growing issue among the voting population and population as a whole. And besides, it's, it's real. I mean, there's somewhat growing income inequality, depending on how you count, in many, many countries. So let's think of those as three big issues. I, I know there are other big issues, but I pick those as almost at random. Just, just try to pick three things. Now, um, why, why don't judges get more involved in that? I mean, it's kind of an interesting question. Like, why don't judges, using the old common law process or the modern constitutional process, why don't they say, oh, um, you're contributing to climate change. You know, you can't do that anymore. Why don't they step in and try to solve social problems like in- income inequality or climate change? That's actually a hard question, but worth uh, thinking about. So one possibility is that they hesitate to tread where elected politicians are moving. You know, people run for office. Everyone these days says, either they say, oh, elect me, I'll solve climate change problem. Or they say, elect me, I'll explain to the world that there is no climate change. I mean, it's one or the other. But it's a big issue in elections. They certainly think, uh, they don't yet say, I'll make sure that autonomous vehicles come in in a way that'll make us all better off and create fewer accidents. But it's coming. Another one or two elections and, and it'll come in. So it's partly, I think, the judges don't want, they didn't think of the problem first. And they're a little bit afraid to go into these issues where they could be dead wrong, right? Like how many judges really know a lot about climate change and what rules exactly are they going to pass? They're going to start holding you responsible if you buy the wrong kind of car or you don't recycle in the green lounge or whatever it is that people do. I mean, it's a little bit hard to imagine in our time judges jumping into this fray either because they don't have the expertise to do it or because they somehow think this is not my job, it's the job of regulators or some other aspect of the government or uh, somehow. It's also a little bit harder to see how, I mean, I picked those three issues at random, I claim. It's hard to see how they're going to take those issues and find them in the Constitution. You know, it was a little bit easier for the other big issues I named uh, same-sex marriage is a good example. It's easy to think of four or five ways it could use the Constitution to change the rules of same-sex uh, marriage. Uh, although, you know, again, even there, like, why doesn't the same Constitution allow multiple spouses? You know, it's a little bit complicated, as we know. But nevertheless, judges went there and legislatures 
have sort of followed them uh, by now. It's a little harder to see how that'll happen with climate change or income inequality. I think a judge that says, you don't want it to be about specific rules, it has to be about general rules. Could a judge say, I think the tax rules are really a bad idea, and from now on, if you make more than $100,000 a year, uh, add a zero to your tax rate, and you owe it over five years. Or you graduate from law school, your expected income over the next whole bunch of years is you know, $2.8 million, and so there's a, here's a bill for $280,000. You can pay it off as you like over the next 15 years. I think that would really be astonishing for a judge to do uh, but it would be similar to what judges did in torts. It would be similar to what judges did in same-sex marriage. I mean, it would be a wholesale change with a judge trying to change the rules to try to change income inequality. I mean, it's really hard to imagine uh, judges doing that. I-, I don't want to say they'd get impeached, but I think people would just laugh and other judges wouldn't follow them. Like, it somehow understood that income inequality is not a thing for judges to do. Maybe a more modern way to say it is it would require Cardozo. It would require the early era Posner. You know, you have to get some really, really respected judge to come in and say, look, this is a huge social problem. Uh, I'm going to give you standing, even though it violates all the past rules of standing. And you know what? From now on, uh, your tax rate is going to be the following. It would really be an amazing uh, change. So it would require a very, very confident judge. But you've met judges like that in your case. It's just not in this uh, area. And the same thing, you know, somebody brought a lawsuit against a car maker and said, uh, you shouldn't be able to make cars anymore. Like, autonomous vehicles are much safer. And we can have, uh, you know, you need to get 100 miles a gallon or you're contributing to global warming. And also, your car needs to run on water, uh, not gas, because it's bad for climate change. And trust me, that'll get people to create more you know, railroads and trains and buses and things like that, so I'll exempt them. So from now on, uh, you know, your car has to get 100 miles, 100 miles a gallon or better. Or it's negligent and you owe a lot of money. That's not so different from what judges did like 75 years ago in other industries. But again, I think it's kind of inconceivable that a judge would do that today unless the judge had great social standing. So it's possible that we will have judges come aboard like that And then people will say, oh, I guess the common law has risen again. But I think it's unlikely. I think people look to the legislature to solve these problems. And so maybe the decline of the common law is a lack of bravery of judges, or maybe we're appointing judges that toe the line and don't think that big social problems are their problem. Or maybe people have much greater faith in legislatures because they feel like it's democracy and they elected those people. Um, But I think that's probably uh, the, the future. That is... It's probably not judges who will help us adjust to climate change, even though that's really what the early common law judges uh, did. So I think maybe it's time for uh, questions, and then we can uh, move into some of this a little longer. And I think if you're a good person, you'll either have a comment or a question, or you'll get the person next to you to ask one. My experience in these things is that if you ask the first or second question, you feel exposed, so nobody wants to go first or second. But then when it's over and you go to class, you feel bad that you didn't ask a question or that you never got heard. So if you're going to ask a question, you know, I'm thinking you should raise your hand now. Yeah, thank you very much for being first. What's it like to be ridiculed by your classmate? Yeah, okay. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I'll repeat every question. 
Yeah. So the question is, uh, if the common law either is or was so great, why didn't uh, other countries copy it? Why are there still civil law countries? I mean, why didn't they also empower judges and, and so forth? Well, uh, a few things. I have two, I think, good answers and one bad answer. Which one you want first? Okay. Uh, I think the bad answer is that uh, there's a lot to be said also for non-common law countries. I mean, it might be that if you pass these rules, if you say that judges don't have this power, then they appoint judges who are less sophisticated and less talented. I mean, judges can't do very much. Like, okay, then it becomes like a civil service job, and you just appoint those people. Whereas the most talented people, I mean, this is certainly true in France, since you raised France, I think the people who go into federal judging in the United States are like among our most talented law graduates. Like, it's a really hot job, and you get a lot of social prestige. The pay is not great, but it's not awful. And people really like those jobs. I mean, I think uh, if right now I offered everybody here uh, a Seventh Circuit, you know, judge job in 20 years, virtually everybody would sign up right now and take the job. Like, it's a really desirable job. Whereas if I said, oh, why don't you go be somebody who drafts rules for the legislature, you know, maybe three people would take the job. So we elevate judges and we downgrade people who draft, especially state statutes, which is a lot of what we're uh, talking about. Whereas in France, the opposite is true. I mean, once you become a civil law country and everything is in the statute, Japan is an even more extreme example. You meet a Japanese judge, all respect to people in the room, you like fall asleep within five minutes. (laughs) Whereas you meet a Japanese legislature or, you know, somebody who designs tax law in Japan, they are really, really impressive people. And the best graduates of law schools go to those jobs. So a lot of it is a little bit circular. You know, once once you're a common law country, more people want to be judges. You have power. You can... Do same-sex marriage. It's really fantastically powerful. Whereas if you're in France, you can never do that. You can never even change zip codes. I mean, you can't do anything. <laughs> you know, all you can do is like, you can't even tell people what they can wear or not wear. You can't do anything. You could change, oh, you can widen the street a little bit. You know, that is something that they do, that judges do in France. So I think it's, a, it's not a very good answer because you might say, where does that circularity come from? But I think, you know, once you go down one route, it attracts talented people in different countries. And it probably is smart for France not to become a common law country because their judges are, you know, relatively unimportant, so to speak. They're not trained to be Posner. Whereas in the United States, it's the opposite way around. If I said you could be, you know, a state court legislator, boy, most people wouldn't want that job. I mean, it's a hard job. You've got to drive a long way. You don't get paid very much. It's part-time. Kentucky, you meet one month a year. You know, it's not really a full-time job. Uh, you know, you've got a title, but, but that's about uh, it. Again, I apologize if, like, your grandparents were state court judges. So that's the bad reason, but the bad reason's not bad. The more I said it, the more I thought, oh, that's pretty good, you know. <laughs> but I think, I think that's the bad reason. I think the better, the better answer, and then I'll, I'll turn to you, the better answer is something like, um, there, there are a lot of things that countries, you know, there are good, oh, and there are good reasons why civil law can be efficient as well. Remember that a really big thing that countries can do is copy one another, especially in the modern era where we have really good travel and communication and so forth. So there are a lot of rules that are really very, very similar country by country. I, I used to have this expression that I would say in class, like, um, if I don't tell you where you are, but I put you in an airplane, blindfolded, 
and then I land you in Switzerland, let's say, which is a civil law country. I land you in Switzerland, and then I say, okay, do you think you're in a civil law or common law country? Or, you know, do you know where you are? And all you have to do is watch the legal rules and watch human behavior in action, watch people drive on the street. Would you know if they had comparative or contributory negligence? No. You watch people in a store and when you can return a good. You know, would you know what kind of legal system it had? You know, it's amazing. Basically, somebody would have to yodel before you'd know where you were. You know, these societies look astonishingly similar. And so partly they gravitate to the same rules. Partly they copy one another's good rules. One country comes up with an income tax. It's a big hit. Or people hate it. Then another country copies it. And, you know, so the similarity across these jurisdictions is really striking. And I think one reason is that they're allowed to copy one another. So you have to go somewhere really strange. You have to go somewhere where they haven't met people from other countries to find really different rules. Even there, they have some of the same rules. Negligence is a rule in every society we've found, for example. There's a lot written about this, but you have to take a course in comparative law. So I think this imitation is there. And whatever common law countries do well, civil law countries are perfectly free to copy. And that's really changed things a lot. Yeah. Um, did you come to Chicago because you like the uh, harsh give and take, or you came here to be uh, approved of? Well, I don't agree with like a single word in that <laughs> in that paragraph. I mean, first of all, we had very very large companies all the way back to the 1700s. You know, ships crossing the ocean and doing trading were you know much much bigger companies percentage wise than we have today. And also looking at the modern times, I mean, somebody who starts Facebook or somebody who, you know, creates iPhones, when those companies, those are very, very big companies now, when those companies started, they had no idea what the legal rules would be. They didn't know what, how patent law would deal with people copying it. They didn't know what trading law would be like with China and other countries. So there's tremendous uncertainty if you're in one of those businesses. I'd be hard-pressed. I mean, your, your claim is that those big companies which dominate society today, they had a much better idea. You know, they need to know certainty, and that's why law has moved to certainty. And I don't think in those areas they had any certainty at all. I, I think part of the fun of being that kind of entrepreneur is you really have no idea what the rule is going to be. You kind of hope you can evolve the rule on your own. So I, I guess I just don't agree with the question. I don't think it's obvious you know, there are some things that are obvious. I mean, if you open a university now, now universities now are not bigger than they were in the past, percentage-wise. But if you open a university now, I think the rules are pretty clear. I mean, I kind of agree with your question there. You can't really innovate that much. You've got to conform to all these rules that society and government has set out. 
So, okay, I mean, there are some industries where there is a lot of certainty. You've got to follow some rules and, and so forth. But they don't strike me as bigger or smaller than industries in the past. I think if we look at the very big industries now, they have a lot of uncertainty. I think it's healthy that they have uncertainty. It's unhealthy in the sense that they lobby and make the rules conform to themselves. So, I, I don't know, like gun makers, I mean, they used to be really, really big. Uh, they didn't have certainty. Now, uh, there's much more certainty, but they're all outsourced by the government. The government is passing the rules. So, really, there is a lot of certainty, but it's government-created. So it doesn't feel like the same kind of certainty. It's not judge-created, I'll grant you that. So I, you want to go again? I mean, I, I, so I feel like I don't know how to respond because I just don't agree with the question. Well, I think I would say, for example, that the model that I don't think is necessarily sure is relevant to talking about something that's going beginning Well, so give me an example of a very big company that worked because it faced certainty. That's so, so the, the kind of example that I'm thinking of would be like Standard Oil, which basically grows by vertically integrating you know, the, the extraction and production forces. And, and so you think they faced certainty or uncertainty? So I'm saying that before Standard Oil came along, tremendous amount of uncertainty in the market for all the market participants who are trying to, they don't know what the price of oil is going to be. Uh, and, you know, well, the government didn't declare the price of oil. They didn't know how much oil the government would buy. They didn't know if the government would be on their side in acquiring land. And they didn't know what, you know, rules would be about the environment. I mean, they faced a lot of uncertainty. Oil. Yeah. Yeah, but, but that wasn't government influence. Okay, I'm not I, saying that that was government yeah. influence. I'm just saying it's a different kind of market organization. Okay, I think I understand your, uh, your question now. I don't know. I, I don't know how to respond. I mean, I, I don't think these companies could have predicted what would happen to antitrust law. And that was probably the most interesting set of rules that affected them. And that was very much created by judges. I mean, you, again, I don't know that we want to call that common law, but I would call that common law. Like, the legislation... I don't know if people here have taken antitrust, but you know the legislation was, you know, bogus. I mean, there's one line: "Oh, uh, restraint of trade." Like, what's restraint of trade? Well, it required judges following a kind of common law process to really create, and the judges went business by business and tried to understand the economics of industries and then pass the rules. So it was very judge-made law. It was very uncertain. I think actually it was probably pretty good, and the the law must have been afraid like it is today. If we pass the wrong rules about the internet, these companies will go to Europe, or they'll go, oh, why anyone would want to go there, I don't know. But these companies will want to go elsewhere. So I feel like it's very similar. I don't really think it's changed, but it sounds like you've thought about it more than I have. Please. Posner uh, hates agencies, unlike uh, Jennifer No, who loves agencies. Um, agencies are a whole different subject. Uh, so I'm tempted to say, let's set them aside. But I, I can't help but comment on them for a minute. I, I don't know anything about them. I never took an agency course in law school. 
Uh, but then again, I never took property either, and you know, I went to Yale. Like you know, I really only learned a lot once I went into law teaching. You know, I think it's very hard to know. But these agencies. So let's put tax aside. Tax is a very interesting example because law seems to have recognized that the Internal Revenue Service will create a lot of law. Although there's also a lot of common law. You know, the the law says like, oh, form over substance. You know, it's got some rules there. Uh, and those are created by judges, sometimes then codified. So there's a lot of common law in tax, but I think the Congress understands, I, I don't mean this sarcastically, Congress seems to understand, and judges understand, we don't understand jack about tax. Like, it's really hard. Uh, corporate tax, up, down, merges, we don't understand it. So they give it all to an agency, and the agency passes the rule and writes some of them down, and then academics comment on it. And I think there's very little common law in it, but it's not exactly a decline. But there's also very little legislation. These are, you read the statute, and it really doesn't tell you what the rule is going to be. You know, it's very up in the air, and the agency does all the deciding. Environmental law might be a better uh, example. So once upon a time, there was tort law, and then people started worrying about the environment. Mostly countries in the east started worrying that these Midwest countries were polluting the air and it was blowing to the east. So it was filthy in you know, Pennsylvania, but it was caused in Ohio. And so they wanted to nationalize environmental law, not to mention water and stuff like that. So they really got nervous about that. And the question is, well, how do they go about it? Do we think they would have gone to the courts and had common law decisions about how you got to not pollute so much in Ohio? Or do we think they went to the legislature and said, you need to pass these rules? Now, we know the answer, which is they went to the legislature. And the question is, why did they do that? And I think the answer is a kind of public choice answer. Like, it would have seemed very hard for a judge to tell people in Ohio, you're polluting too much, you've got to pollute less, because people on the East Coast are really getting damaged by it. That would have been a big move, like the moves I've described that I don't expect judges to do now. So it really would have been kind of astonishing, although maybe it would have happened. Whereas interest groups were very powerful to go to Congress and say, you know, we can't farm anymore. The farm is crazy because these people in Ohio are throwing this junk in the air and it's coming all over here. So it might have been natural for their you know, legislatures to get involved in that. So in that sense, maybe, uh, and then how would they do it? I mean, Congress doesn't know anything about the environment. You know, what are they going to do? They could hire lots of people. Well, they did in the form of these agencies, and they set up these things like environmental protection and so forth, which itself is politicized, but it's appointed. So I guess it's a natural development. It happens in every country, including civil countries as well, civil law countries, that you sort of outsource to so-called experts in the field. Posner is quite skeptical about these agencies. They have their own interests. They have a lot of employees. Uh, they really like what they do. It's very, very hard to find anybody who worked for an agency who says there's any flaw in the agency at all. They act like it's perfect. And, uh, you know, no one ever blames the environment on the agencies, you know, although they should. So I, I don't really know. I'm, I'm not a fan of uh, agency prerogative in general. So I'm giving away my, uh, my personal bias. So I don't know. I mean, it's hard to know. It's, it's complicated. And, you know, theoretically, the agencies work for the president, even though Congress can defund them and stuff. So it's not even clear, you know, how to do balance of power stuff. But usually the agency, oh, and courts generally feel free to overrule agencies. So it's really complicated. It's like a fourth branch of government, and they're all rolled into one, and everybody thinks they can monitor them, but they resist and think they can monitor themselves. Um, you know, take, uh, I'll give you an example that'll really get people up on their seats. 
take um, people migrating into the country from abroad. So it feels like we have these rules and people object to them and protest them or love them and they change over time. So Congress gets involved and the president gets involved and you know, oh, then we have, you know, we exclude people from some countries, we advantage people from some countries, then the rules change and all that. But when you go deep down and you look at the agency, it's unbelievable who really runs the world. So for example, people coming up and saying, oh, I was tortured in my home country, you should let me in. Congress passed a rule that says, oh, you get favorable treatment if you can show this harshness. But then when you go look at the agency, that is these people who hear the cases, this is really an amazing empirical study. So it turns out that there are some hearing officers that 99% of the people who come to them and say, oh, I'm in danger in my home country, 99% of the time they say, okay, you're in. And then there are other people who 99% of the time say, I don't want to hear your sob story, you're a whiner, I don't believe your story, get out. So it turns out actually that the agency really controls things and the law that's passed really doesn't seem to have that much effect. Like, turns out that the politics and the social sensibility of people running the system really are very, very powerful. And it's just, uh, it's only the New York Times that really seems to care about what the president says and what the legislature says. It really turns out to be these people who make very little money that are deciding these cases. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to make about that. turns out that some of these you know, agencies are really, really important, but we don't even quite understand how to monitor them. You can't fire the ones you don't like because they're civil servants, etc. You could hire more of them, but you don't know what their leanings will be and so it will change. I, I don't know. I mean, it's good that we have courses in it and people study it, although they might be studying the wrong things. So I, I guess I feel sufficiently inexpert at it, other than... Uh, Boy, I, I think we need to criticize them more and look more into what they're doing and, and so forth. We have time for two more, I think. Please. A little bit less. I mean, there's a literature about this, somewhat. After all, people can bring claims. You want a one-word answer or a, a, a more interesting answer? One-word answer is no. Uh, the longer answer is a Fetzlock's not an original phenomenon. I mean, it goes all the way back to the founding of the nation. I mean, there are a lot of interest groups that got their people appointed to the bench or had law firms that went and brought cases. I mean, that, that's a very interesting literature about if you're an interest group, do you spend your time trying to time cases and bring them in the right order to the right courts? Oh, I'll bring this one in California. I'll bring this one in New York First Circuit, you know. Or do you go to the legislature and try to influence them? Like, where is the power and how do you go about it? So this is not new, uh, so to speak. Um, they didn't uh, have catchy names and wear ties all the time like FedSoc. Or maybe everybody wore ties. And, you know, I don't really know. Um, so it just, I think it seems like they're uh, more involved now. Maybe a way to think about it is that the precursor of FedSoc was really uh, labor organizations. I mean, they were very, very powerful for, let's say, 80 or 100 years. They affected a lot of legislation and sometimes court cases, and they had a whole agency in its hearings. 
And they were very powerful, you know, a hundred times more powerful than Fedsock, I think. And then they declined a little bit because people moved with their feet and they didn't like a lot of disadvantages. There was a lot of corruption, as there might turn out to be with Fedsock appointees and so forth. Like, it's really hard to know which way the wind blows. So I don't, I, I don't think that's, to me, that's not an important part of the story. That is, I think these interest groups have more to do with what legislation has passed, but it has something to do with who becomes judges and which judges get appointed. But again, I, I think that's always been true. I, again, when I say it's always been true, it doesn't make it good. I mean, it might make it worse. Like, oh my God, there's corruption now. There was always corruption. Oh, I feel better about it. No, I, I feel worse about it now. Again, immigration and tariffs are another good example. I mean, tariffs are a hugely important part of American history and who got elected and who didn't. And it was interest groups like FedSoc, so to speak. It was interest groups who, you know, the South had more cotton, the North had more this. Who wanted to trade with which countries? Who wanted immigrants to come in? Who didn't want immigrants to come in? The railroads wanted Chinese workers. Other companies didn't want Chinese. You know, the whole thing's flipped about whether people on the right liked immigration or people on the left like immigration. You know, all these things change over time for reasons we can understand. But it's hard-pressed to say, oh, that's what makes judges less important or more important. I think they've always, you know, that's maybe the beauty of somebody like Posner and Cardozo. I mean, the more talented the judge, the more eventually law copies what the judge thinks. You know, a judge with really great insight. But maybe it does that for the legislature, too. If only we could do a controlled experiment. If we had a talented legislator, you know, then we could see, well, is she really doing a good job? But to get elected, you need to have good TV presence. You need to, do, you know, it's not like there are geniuses in the Senate. So maybe that's the right answer to your question. You know, there are real geniuses in the federal courts, and I think they rise and fall in power based on whether they have good ideas and people follow them. Uh, you know, you'd be hard-pressed, uh, at least since 1830, to say, boy, we really had this unbelievable, unbelievably influential congressperson who really got everybody thinking about tax law or environmental law differently and wow, that made such a difference. The person really had insight in what would make the society grow. That's really kind of sad in a way. Uh, so I guess I just think it's always been like this, but I don't feel very good, very good about that. And for the final question, um, I'm going to move here to make you speak louder. Well, that was the claim anyway. Well, I think it's, again, I think it's moved to right. you know, other kinds of law. That's true. Just we call it con law. Yeah, so the question is, uh, do I think there's a future to the legislature? Is that a fair restatement? Yeah, uh, I don't teach con law. I, I, I used to really be proud of the fact that every three years I would teach a new course at whatever law school I was at. I've, I've been at two of them. Uh, but I've never taught uh, constitutional law. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, don't really I don't really understand it, actually. Um, but I, I have a view. So let me tell you my view, and maybe that'll turn your question around, and then we'll say goodbye. Um, my view is something like this that if you look over American history, not other countries, but if you look over our legal system, a determined legislature 
always wins. That is, uh, it's not the courts that win, it's not the president that wins, but it's especially not constitutional law in the courts that wins. But the legislature has to really be determined. So if courts say, uh, I mean, abortion is a really good example, although you know, it gets people a little nervous when you talk about it. But, uh, but in a sweet way, they're worried somebody will say the wrong thing or whatever. But I, at my age, you can say whatever you want. You know, um, you know abortion is a really good example. Like if courts say that uh, abortion is a right because people have, should have control of their own bodies, as we see, determined legislatures can really make that right of lower and lower value. They can change uh, rules about where buildings can go. They can change rules about how far people can be from the building to protest. They can change the money rules of their uh, insurance systems. I mean, they can just pick away at a rule they don't like. Uh, the same with immigration. They can change tax law. They can change this. They can change. So if the legislature is determined, the legislature can... I mean, the legislature can really have the last word by just going over and over again and coming up with other rules and changing it. You know, it wants to lower the, the age for something, it can eventually lower the age. And there's really nothing, you know, courts can speak once in a while, the legislature can find a way out of it, but they have to be determined. So something, usually what happens is the legislature is happy to see the courts take the lead. You know, they didn't want to be the one that says birth control was okay, they wanted courts to say it was okay. And then the legislature responding to people like, okay, Finally, like, you know, I didn't want to do it because I wouldn't get reelected, but, oh, the court said it, oh, the court's holy, we got to follow the court. But if people really wanted birth control to be illegitimate, I mean, they could have passed more and more statutes, oh, you know, we don't give this to people who do that, or we make it harder to get your license, and, you know, they're just, they're very, very, very powerful. So I think that ultimately the control is really in the legislature, assuming that the legislature is the same over time. You know, if it's a Democrat in that state, the Democrats have to really hold power for a while, and they could eventually uh, change things. So again, I guess, I'm not sure I'm going with the question exactly. Um, but I think, you know, that's really how democracy works. If people are really determined to get something, they really want gambling. That's a good example. If they really want gambling, they're going to get gambling. No matter what the courts do, what anybody else does. It might take a long time, and it might take small rules, and you can only do it on funny boats on the water, and then on this and on that. If they really want to smoke weed, eventually they're going to smoke weed. If the legislature wants it over and over again, and that's what young people want, and all that sort of thing. It's just, courts can do it in a day, and the legislature can do it in 20 years. Um, and that maybe is the difference. So thank you very much. Don't forget class. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.